Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course. The sun is shining, the birds are about, and there's a sudden buzz in the crowd. Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box. 15 hole here, drivers recommended. <laughs> is he a caveman? Because he suddenly clubbed that one. What do you reckon, George? <laughs> I mean, did he hit that with a dictionary? Because that was a terrible read. <laughs> G'day and welcome. This is golf. Andrew Datto is my name. The king of Australian golf courses is Royal Melbourne. Every time they, they do the list, Royal Melbourne is right there at the absolute top. The pro at Royal Melbourne has been there since 1979. His name is Bruce Green and he's my guest today. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him. We first met uh, at Peninsula Golf Club. So he he started at Riversdale and then went to Peninsula and then uh, went to Royal Melbourne, as I say, 1979. He's one of three people that's given me an official golf lesson, and I really wish I remembered more of it. I asked Dad about him because I know Dad had a lesson with him years ago at, at Royal Melbourne. Now, Dad plays right-handed with a left-handed grip, and he's actively, you know, shunned lessons because he didn't want to get laughed at. He finally got the guts, went and saw Bruce. Bruce said, look, it's not your grip and it's not your clubs. And then took dad's club, put on a left-handed grip with a right-handed swing and then belted balls down the middle of the fairway, you know, like six, seven balls and said, these are not the problem. The problem's somewhere in your mechanics. He's a genius. And that's why he's been at Royal Melbourne for so long. And he's a people person and he's had some brilliant experiences. So we're going to talk about all of that today. As I say, I'm very excited to, to have him on the Zoom. So there's a few little glitches, so please bear with me on those. Um, it, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly at all, it's all about the simplicity of the game, a game that is becoming increasingly complicated, and he just takes it back to brass tacks. So there's a lot in here, um, great stories, great memories, and some fantastic tips and insights on the game. We began at the beginning with how it all began for him and the game of golf. So this is Bruce Green, uh, and I really hope you enjoy it. Well, I think, yeah, I think, and so many others have come up the same way, and it's just a tragedy that we no longer have caddies. But when you learn as a caddy like Lee Trevino and lots of the great old players, um, you learn 
absolute grassroots. You learn from the beginning. You learn it naturally. You know, in those days we didn't, uh, we couldn't afford to have lessons. So, effectively, I've never had a golf lesson in my life. And yet, uh, I won a couple of Victorian PGA, so I could play all right. And um, uh, but I do understand. Uh, I probably most more than most. Uh, how to play the game um, and and play all the short game shots, little trick shots that uh, like Trevino could play. A lot of people can't play those, you know. It's um, so I learned very naturally as a young boy. Yeah. But so you must have. So oh, let's let's go to the caddying. What made you want to caddy in the first place? Was it just like a bobber job sort of thing, or did you just love the game well, from the very beginning? Yeah, I lived on with my three brothers on my grandfather's dairy farm in Chilver Street, Cheltenham. And uh, we used to sneak up, caught the odd ball that was uh, still rolling at Sandringham. Yeah. And we'd slip over the other end of the course and sell them. So we, we were productive at a very early age, around 12 and 13. And then we got caught once, so we decided to become more legitimate. So we went and registered at Royal Melbourne as caddies. So I was there when I was 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, and that's how it all begins. And and so many other golfers will tell you the same. And, you know, unfortunately, sadly now, uh, the days of the caddy have virtually dried up. What do you think about the changes in the game and the way the game's progressed? Well, you know, I get asked the question a lot. A lot of people say, you know, that the game, you know, is made uh, too easy with the big heads and the way they design clubs today and uh, that the ball goes too far and the golf courses are not long enough and the challenge is not there. My answer to that is you've still got to put the ball on the face. You've still got to get it. The, the size of the hole hasn't changed. And, you know, as far as the distance is concerned, uh, my, I'm a great fan of Lee Trevino. He had so many good sayings. And one of them is that the, the woods are all full of big hitters, right? So people <laughs> love... The, yeah, when they play the game, they yeah. just love to hit the ball as far as they can. That, that's, that's enough for them. When they come in, if they hit a few really big shots, you know, they don't really care about the score half the time as long as they're hitting the ball a long way. And, and that's gone to a new level on the US Tour now when Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka, those blokes go to the gym every day and they pump up huge weights and they hit the ball out of sight. So, you know, the middle range club, the long irons have virtually gone out the door. So it's all yeah. it's all changing, um, uh, but the game will still be a difficult game because you've got to you know you can get it on the greens. You still got to get it in that little hole. And uh, I think the other thing with the game that I, I I don't like to see, and I go I'm a bit of an old fashioned character here, but you know nowadays we used to get the club and walk up and hit the ball, and you'd look and say that's a six iron and whack on the green. Now. There's such a process and, of course, all the young guys see it and then they go through the process and yardages and all sorts of things and the game has slowed up considerably. So, it's you know, some people get put off in this game because it's slow. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, you just got it and you went out and hit it and chased it, hit it and got it in the hole and added it up and finished the round, go and have a few beers and away you go. <laughs> but one of the things that lots of pros say now is you know you've got to have a process so they're actually pushing the agenda of having a you know having a routine having a pre-shot route maybe do you think we are actually overthinking things well i see that in a lot of cases um but having said that i see some of the uh, the young guys coming through now and watching the the two boys win the other day Mm. um herbert and and davis 
And I mean, they, they didn't go through a, a great process. Whereas if you watch Bryce at the Shambo, and I love watching him, he's exciting. Yeah. But boy, you've got to be a mathematician or your caddy's got to be, you've got to have some sort of calculator out there uh, to calculate every move. Well, that, that can paralyze the game, but it, it, it suits some. If you're, that, if you're technically, technically minded, that's going to suit you. Yeah. But to a lot of golfers, it's going to be the, the worst, and, and I've taught golf for 50 years, right? And the worst, the worst thing that can happen is paralysis by analysis. It, it just absolutely stifles people's game. I see it every day. Saw it today, saw it yesterday. 50 years in golf, what do you love about yep. coaching? Um, I think any job, if you can get job satisfaction, um, that it, that's got to be what it is. I mean, it's the old saying in life is if you find a job you love, you don't have to work for the rest of your life. And and my job is about that way. I think I think if anyone can spend all those years at a wonderful golf club with a lot of fantastic people, I mean, I'd have to be the luckiest guy in town for me to for me to wander to virtually live you know, near a golf course wander onto the golf courses, wander into be a caddy, um, spend all that time. I'm an honorary member for life in rural Melbourne with Greg Norman, uh, Adam Scott and Carrie Webb. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, I've just been very, very fortunate that um, the club have been tremendous. And, and as far as they're concerned, you know, I'm going to be there until I drop. All right. Well, don't drop. Don't drop too soon. Hey. No, I've had a couple. I've had a couple of goes, but I don't think I'm wanted upstairs or downstairs. So I'm still here. Okay. Cool. Well, that's that's good for the rest of us. Yeah. In your coaching, I mean, you coached Baker Finch uh, when he won his um, when he won his Open. Yeah. That must have been very gratifying. Yeah, well, again, you know, I didn't, I didn't coach, coach him year in, year out. Um, mm. Every now and again, Ian would come along like he did only three or four years ago. He turned up out of the blue and wanted me to have a look at him again. Um, so mm. I was there, always there to help him. Um, he was uh, uh, Peter Thompson coached him for some years, and then um, when uh, Ian no longer took out Peter's daughter, then Peter decided <laughs> he wasn't going to coach. <laughs> right, really. <laughs> That's the way it is, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've helped him along the road and uh, Mike Harwood, who was runner-up, I've coached him really from the start of his professional career um, right through to uh, some very good results along the road. So there's been, there's been a lot of good players that, uh, you know, you work through. Sometimes you might only work with them for a week or two or a month or, you know, they come in, they come out. They're always looking for their little secret. Okay. Mm. So, so in your mind, what's the secret? The secret of the game is, well, Hogan said it's in the ground. If you keep digging the ground, you might find it. Um, I think if there is any secret to the game, then you must be strong on the fundamentals, grip stance, posture, alignment. Um, and then the, and the real secret, of course, is that if you can get the club hit square at impact with maximum speed, you can't do any better than that. Right. That's it. That's and if it. you've got those basics, then you've got a chance. If, you, if you've got a swing that goes in all places, you've got a bad grip and uh, bad alignment, it's pretty hard to make that club come back square uh, day in, day out. So okay. I, would, I would go to that. and That's what I've always stuck with. I've never varied off the path. And uh, uh, today I'm still coaching uh, a lot of my members and um, guests from outside the club. 
and and I'm loving every minute of. So, you know, going back to your question, I, I love what I'm doing. I'm passionate about it. And when you see results and you see the look on the person's face or they come to you and they win this or they win that, um, you know, you, you feel justified in what you're doing and um, it's just a nice way to spend your life. And is everyone coachable? Like if you, you must have met uh, someone who's gone, yeah, well, you've looked at them and gone, oh, look, I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, I'll throw, I'll throw this story to you. There was a guy called Mike Butcher. He was an American guy living in Victoria. He uh, injured an arm in the dockyards over in Williamstown. He was out here working on whatever, warships or anything, whatever. Anyway, I get a phone call and he said to me, uh, Hi, he said, my name is Mike Butcher. He said, I, I've been looking at you on YouTube and he said, I think you're the right man for me. So, yeah. I said, what's your problem? And he said, well, I can't hit the ball. You know, every time I hit it, it goes sideways and, you know, I, I got a problem with my elbow. I injured it. You know, I think you can help me. Will you cut me a deal? I said, yeah, we'll cut you a deal. So I cut him a deal and I said, come down. So I gave him three lessons. And every time he go to hit the ball, his left arm would just collapse and the ball goes straight left. And I tried all sorts of things, you know, stabbing the ball, everything. I wasn't getting anywhere and I felt like this was a day. You know, it comes a time when you, you just got to tell them it ain't going to happen. Right? Right. I've done my best. And out of frustration, I, I wandered over to our uh, where the balls are kept in the ball dispenser and I opened the door and I found a left-handed driver. This guy was right-handed. And I thought, well, this is desperation stakes. Maybe this guy can actually hit it back to front. So we took the driver over and the very first ball teed up, a Callaway driver, he hit the ball about 210 metres, further he's ever hit the ball. Right. And you could see that the eyes were sort of welling up and we did it again, we did it again. Came down the next week, bought a brand new set of left-handed Callaways. Yep. He still plays golf today and loves it. He still comes down once every three or four months. Um, and, you know, he absolutely loves the game. So we just fluked something at the last minute right. and out it comes. And so he... he, he he goes away with people up the bush, plays along the Yarra, sorry, along the, the Murray, and he yeah. has a fantastic time. Right. Hmm. And so he was probably always left-handed, just never well, knew. Well, he, he kind of was, but he wasn't a true left-hander. Um, it was just, I think it was just one of those things that uh, he had, like a lot of right-handers that got no ability left-handed at all, right? So he must have had, there was something in there. I don't know what that twigged me, but I... I didn't think at the time I'm thinking this guy his left arm is so um, gone from this injury that it's not going to happen maybe if I went the other way round, mm. then maybe it might work and sure enough it did and it still works today so you've had at, at Royal Melbourne you get people through I mean I remember the, the last time that I was lucky enough to play there and I think uh, well no I remember Lewis Hamilton was there and he's dressed like a rapper I remember saying to whoever we're with I've gone Jesus have a look at that bloke and they've gone, it's Lewis Hamilton. He's dressed in the garish, bloody, like the full outfit. You must have met in your 40-plus years at Royal an amazing array of people, celebrities, golfers, the whole shebang. Yeah, and that's all part of the job. That, I mean, that makes it interesting outside of the everyday interest. Um, I played a, the first one that I recall uh, of any note was Bob Hope. Yeah, played with Bob Hope. Was and, he good? Uh, 
Yeah, no, he was a reasonable player and, and his wife, I think his name was Dolores. Um, she, there was a little hut on the first tee at Royal Melbourne, a green hut where the ladies used to wait for the guys to hit off. And he slammed it into that hut and his wife came racing out, swearing and carrying on. And then Bob Hope said to me, God damn, he said, why, in Royal Melbourne, this famous golf, why would you have a green shed on the first tee? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was a clear recollection. He, he, was, he was pretty good on the way around, but, you know, I had a lot of fun. We played with Sean Connery. I won 10 bucks off him. And then I, I was going to frame it. And um, somehow or other, the kids saw it in the drawer one day and That's went okay. down and spent it at the shops and it's gone. So I'd have to be a pretend one, but it was good, would have been good to frame. Right. Billy and Crystal was fantastic. He took us get, to his show. Yeah. Yep. Do you get nervous when you play oh, with – Do you get, when, so say someone like Bob Hope, right? So the expectation with him would be that he'd be funny and gregarious and a raconteur and telling stories the whole way around. Is that what he was like? Um, not really. I mean, they're all a little bit different when they're out of the camera. I mean, uh, uh, Sean Connery was just normal, very normal. Yeah. I, I played with He's Kevin a good golfer, Foster. isn't he? Uh, yeah, he was a good golfer, yeah. Played well, but um, I think Kevin Costner was sort of, I don't know, he wasn't in a mood to talk. He was just wanted to play golf. So whereas Ronnie Corbett used to come every year. Right. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun with him. He knew us and came in the pro shop and he'd spend time with him. He loved it. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourites, uh, which uh, it's funny how it happened, but when I was pro at Peninsula, the boys came out into that walkway and they said, oh, there's a guy on the phone, uh, Donald Bradman. I said, oh, yeah, that'll be my mate Jeff Parslow again because I got to bring you up and say, you know, hey, this is Jack Nicholas or whoever, right? Yeah. And you just know. And, I, and so I'm thinking uh, this is Jeff Parslow who was pro Yarra Yarra. So I get I get on the phone and I go, uh, yes, Donnie? He said, uh, yes, Donald Bradman here. Lady Jess and I are coming to stay in the house next Monday and I'm wondering if we could uh, – you know, have a game at nine holes with you. And I, I shrunk. I went, oh, Sir Donald, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I have people playing pranks and I just I just thought it was my mate playing a prank. Oh, don't worry, old chap. He said, uh, that happens to everybody. And then we got on really well. Played, right. played two or three games with him when he was over and uh, just a lovely guy. Yep, very, very normal. Yep. Okay, you said you played four. Course, sorry, go on. Sorry. No, no, yeah. it's, I'm just going to say that you said that you played Connery for money, so you had 10 bucks on it yeah. with him. That's it. So did yep. you play when you were younger, or even now, like do you play much for money? Do you? Like, well, we did a lot years ago. I yeah. mean, nowadays, you know, people, I mean, Royal Melbourne, the, the Royal Melbourne um, uh, standard rate is you, you split, <laughs> I believe it, in the old days you split a dollar, they've gone up a bit. It's like they split $5 now. Imagine yeah. playing golf and splitting a dollar. No. <laughs> that was it because it, it was frowned upon that, uh, you know, we had a few that would come along and play for hundreds of dollars, mm. a few members. But in the main, the standard rate was, you know, was split a dollar. Well, geez, how do you do that? You know, 25 cents out of it. Yeah. Yeah, but I do remember my uh, grandfather used to play and he'd come home and he'd go, he'd, he'd go, I won the money. I said, oh, what'd you win, Pop? And he'd go, 10 cents. <laughs> 10 cents, that's it. Well, they used to put me on the putting green for five cents at Royal Melbourne and then in their jacket and tie, then they'd go into the clubhouse and have a two or three course meal and then they'd go out and play. Yeah. And I caddied, that's the way it was done. 
the beauty of the game is that because of the rules are so strict, the game really doesn't change. You know, you're seeing sports changing everywhere, but you know, the golf is the, the outside of a few rule changes, which, you know, I think, you know, you can press down a spike mark. That's only makes sense. And, it's, you know, you know, dropping the ball, the lost ball, all those things have changed. So, yeah, there is, there it, it changes so slowly that half the time you wouldn't even know it's changing because right. that's the beauty of the game, as you know, Andrew. It's um, it's a fabulous game. You could go out there with the world on your on your head. By the time you finish the game, you've forgotten about the lot. Yeah, you must have seen some. Um, I just I just try to think back at the some of the crappy golf clubs that I've purchased in the in the hope of becoming a better golfer, like a chipper or a square driver or a, you know, like what, is this anything stand out in your mind of, you know, as you say, 50 years of golf and where really things have changed dramatically in the, in the equipment. Have you seen stuff that's come through? You've just gone, Oh my God, what are oh, they yeah. doing if now? You, if you look at, if you look at the way they made golf clubs, you know, 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then nothing like today. They're also, you know, they've, they've made sand irons like that, like a scoop, like mm. you could actually scoop it out. I mean, now the the uh, royal and ancient stipulate, you know, the laws of the game, and and you see traditional clubs, and they have to be passed before they can go out into the market. So, you know, golf clubs. The, the big change is the oversized head and the peripheral weighting in the irons. The wood, the woods for the big head where you can hit it all over the head and it still works. So that that has given um, probably millions of golfers a lot more fun playing golf, a lot more fun. And and with the irons, you know, you have heel-toe weighting, so you can hit the ball off the toe, hit up the heel, and still goes just the same. Whereas before, you had a straight blade. If you hit it on the toe, it didn't go anywhere. Mm. So, you know, the equipment has definitely made it a bit easier. But as I say before, you still got to get in that hole. Yeah. So, you know, it's still, it'll always be uh, a challenge and it's, um, it's, it's a challenge on the mind of a golfer. You know, if you can't get your mind in the right place, it's a damn hard game to play. Yeah. Have you ever had a try or do, or do you try the hickories? Have you got any interest in those? Yes. Yeah. I was the uh, foundation member of the Golf Society of Australia and um, I've got some hickories. I've got a I've got an old hickory mid club, which is uh, Tom Morris brand, and that'd be a pretty rare commodity, I'd say, because there wouldn't be too many clubs nowadays. I mean, he was probably the first prominent golfer in the history of the game. He and then it was and then it was old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris, and they were both you know, champions in the first British Open. So. Uh, that's probably my favourite club. Sits at home, and I've got a I've got about six or seven hickories, um, and we play in hickory golf days from time to time, and it's a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've met uh, contemporaries of yours uh, on the way mm. through. John Evans is one of them. We had a fantastic yep. chat on the podcast. Met another guy called yep. the Fly, who's a gambling yep. mate of John's, who said that that's you it. and I. That's what I started getting to earlier about the punting. I was trying to drag yes. you, I'd lure you into a story where you actually had a match yeah. with the fly who was a, but, well, you, actually, you can tell me who the fly was because as far as I'm concerned, he was a bookmaker who, or a bookmaker's runner, That's wasn't it. he? Yeah. No, he was a bookmaker he was, and there was, his brother was a bookmaker and his father was a bookmaker. Um, Raymond Miller, we'll, we'll drop his name. 
if he sues me, he sues me, right? Fair enough, fair enough. Um, no, no, he's a mate. And the fly, I nicknamed him the fly because he's a little guy and he used to buzz around, you know, he'd be around you all the time. But he was one of those little guys that wanted to prove that he could stand up with all the big guys. So he cultivated his game. I gave him lots of lessons and we built a pretty strong game. And then he, uh, he was a member of Keysborough and uh, he loved to play for money. Uh, being a bookmaker, or you didn't mind having a bet. And uh, this particular day, he rang me up. We were playing in the uh, PGA at Long Island. And uh, he said, are you having a practice round? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I come down and play with you in the practice round? Because he was uh, going to play in the Pro-Am. So we got permission for him to play and out we went. And we got on the tee and he said, um, I don't play off the stick for 100 bucks." True story. I said, well, rain more. I mean, his handicap was 17, but it should have been about 10, right. maybe eight. Yeah. Anyway, so. I but that, but that's a pretty big leap. It, that's a big leap anyway, isn't it? 17, yeah, he should so have been I, off eight. So. It was an easy 100 in my mind. Anyway, we went out and uh, my recollection is he shot 72 and I shot 74. So I gave him the 100. I wasn't happy about it, but, you know, a guy like that cleaning me up off that handicap just shows you how he could play. Hmm. So he said to me, right, I'll give you a chance to get it back. We're going to play eight in the afternoon. So we hit off the 10th tee and I went um, uh, par, birdie, hole in one, eagle. And he said, that'll do, let's go in. Right. <laughs> I got the 100 back. <laughs> Forget about the 18 holes. The way I was going, I was going to have about 58 for 18. Um, <laughs> to like the holding one being like yeah. an eagle, so you've gone two under, two under, um, three under. So it was just, it never stopped. Right. right. Five under and we walked off. So the fly, yes, he was one of those guys, he played Kerry Packer for money. Um, he would putt Kerry Packer for $1,000 on a putt and get him. Right. He, he was just one of those blokes that he could get his mind fixed and there was no stopping him. He was a beauty. Hmm. Okay. So how And there's a few others... There was one other day when he brought somebody and we had a game and we we're playing for a few dollars and I said to him, look, I've just, you know, I, I don't really want to have a bet in this game. I've, I've got spondylitis. He said, what's that? I said, well, it's sort of arthritic area of the spine. I said, no, you know, I've been in treatment, but I'm okay. But, you know, there's no point in betting. And he said, he said uh, all right, well, okay, we'll, we'll give you a few shots and, and we'll have a game. Anyway, we went out there and I shot 68 off the sticker, <laughs> cleaned up every cent he had. <laughs> so in the Sporting Globe the next week, the story came out that uh, he wanted to know where you can get spondylitis from. <laughs> that so was can, him. Right. Um, you see, you, you won a couple of um, Victorian titles. What, what was it that PGAs. made you... PGAs. Yeah, what made you uh, give the competitive part of golf away? Well, at that stage, you know, it was so hard to get a sponsor. Uh, yeah. I was teaching at Royal Melbourne as a young guy at 19. And, you know, you're getting a secure wage in your pocket. You know, whereas in those days, you'd, you'd spend everything you had just to go and play the tour. And if you got lucky, you know, you might come home in front, but you could come home broke. Yeah. So the defining moment, um, I played in the tour in South Australia and I shot two course records and I won two tournaments, my first uh, I played in a tournament with Graham Marsh. That was his very first tournament at Goolwa, and I shot a course record there. Um, and I thought I was pretty good. So I rang up my boss at Royal Melbourne, 
a chap called Alex Orr, and I said, um, you know, <laughs> I'd like to go away for the next three weeks and play what they call the Tropo Tour, which is up in Queensland. Yeah. He said, he said, well, you can do that. He said, but you won't have a job when you come back. I said, I'll see you tomorrow. That was it. That, that was, was it. Right. That was so it. Yep. Do, you, do you look and back then at all? At, yeah, in 1979, I played really well in the PGA, the Australian PGA Championship at Royal Melbourne. And after three rounds and a bit, um, I was right in the mix to win the tournament. And I just faded towards the end. But, um, you know, I got the questions. People say to me, you know, you should get back on the, get out on the tour and give it a try. Well, I'd only been the pro at Royal Melbourne for um, six months and I wasn't going to do that. And that was it. That was the end of it. So I still played a few tournaments. I played uh, I played tournaments with Gary Player, played with Arnold Palmer in Perth, played with Greg Norman at Metro and a couple other spots. So, you know, I've got no regrets. Had okay. a lot of fun. Who was the um, – I mean, that's three pretty fantastic names, four fantastic names you've just said. Who was the best that you played with? Well – You've got to get them into different categories. The best player that I've ever seen, and a lot of the older pros will tell you that Bob Stanton mm-hmm. was the best. Um, you can find him at a coffee shop in Port Douglas in the main street uh, most mornings at 10 o'clock. Um, he, he was a wonderful player, wonderful. He went to America and I guess he just lost his way. He was just like Aaron Badley, he was a young guy. He beat Arnold Palmer at uh, the Australian. He won the he won the Wills Masters Australian. He won the Dunlop International at Canberra, Royal Canberra, and he was a gun. Absolutely the best I've ever seen of all the players I've seen. And you know the Bobby Shearers and Jack Newtons and all those guys will tell you that guy was something else. Um, unfortunately. Um, he kind of lost his way a little bit in the States and the, he got a contract to work at um, one of the big resorts and then play six months of the year. Then he stopped playing. Then he came back to Australia and he uh, he really wasn't ready at all, but he played in the uh, Australian Open at Royal Melbourne and he had to get um, – well, Tom Watson beat him by a shot on the last hole. He two-putted from about 40 feet, beat Bob by a shot. That's how Bob, Bob Stanton was. Right. Wow. Wow. Okay. So then what about where do you put Norman in that? I mean, everyone's... Uh, right I mean, up there. Yeah. Right the, reason, there. the reason I ask is everyone says, everyone, the, all of you older pros seem to go, Norman. There's no, Norman. It's Norman. It's just, you know. Well, again, there's it, 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 so many different categories you can put it in. I mean, Greg Norman was exciting. You know, he brought... He was the Arnold Palmer of Australia going back 20 years ago. He, he brought the crowds. He was exciting. He hit the ball a long way, long blonde hair. He was a very good player. Mm. Um, if you judge players on results, you might say, you know, Peter Thompson, who won five, five British Opens, you'd have to put him in there. But, you know, he, there was nowhere near the excitement of the Greg Normans and, uh, you know, some of the high Adam Scotts for that matter. But yeah. Peter Thompson has a record, and by, by chance, he actually happens to be my second cousin, which I didn't find out till it was too late. I would have loved to have known years ago and picked his brains, but yeah. couldn't talk to him. <laughs> the game, the game will always be that you stand with the ball 
there and you look at the ball, but the body is at right angles to the hole. Uh, and then you've got to turn your body and cock your wrist and uncock your wrist. So, you know, I, I don't see the game is going to change um, because, you know, it's set in concrete and, and I don't think it needs to change. It is, it, it's just sometimes the matter because all the young kids see all this and, and I see it and I think to myself, you know, don't paralyse the game. Let's, let's, let's play it and enjoy it and, and keep it moving. Hmm. When you say, um, you know, you look at the ball, which part of the ball do you look at? Well, interestingly enough, and I'll, I'll, I'll say what, what a good players do, um, their, their vision is towards the ball, but they don't look at a number on the ball or a sign on the ball. They know where the ball is. A good tennis player, you watch a footballer marking, he doesn't have his head looking at the centre of the football when it lands in his hands. He puts the hands up above his head and the ball falls in his hands. You look at a cricketer who's facing a ball coming down at 100 miles an hour. You think he's watching that ball all the way? No, he's making up his mind what he wants to do. And then there's one thing that comes into every sport and that's called instinct, right? So if you've got good technique, and, you, and you're patient and you trust your instinct. That's how you play golf. That's how you play cricket. That's how you play tennis. That's how you play football. So all the theory of watch the ball. No, no. No. Do you, do you coach with, sorry, sorry, go on. One thing you need to be able to do is have your head in the vicinity of the ball throughout the swing if you can. But people say to me, oh, that was good. I saw the club hit the ball nobody's ever seen the club hit the ball because the club hit's going through at under miles plus. All it is is a bit of shiny steel and the ball disappears. So looking at the ball, looking at where the ball is and trusting your instinct is what it's all about. It's a bit like walking down a bush track, you pick up a stick, you throw a stone in the air and you go whack. You either hit it or you miss it. But after a while, you kind of work out this little thin stick and this little stone, and you can actually hit it. Hmm. And baseball's a classic example. You've got a round ball and a round bat. How do you work that out? Body hard. So, so do you, um, when you coach, I think I know the answer to this, do you video your clients? Do you show Not them Not very often. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I prefer to, to spend my time um, teaching people. I'm, I just find... I find some of them get distracted. I mean, we've got coaches with us that um, they'll work with videos. That's fine. If they want to work, what people want to work with a video, that, that's fine. They can do that. But I just feel the most natural way to hit a golf ball is to have the mind as clear as possible. Um, think more about uh, the shape of the shot. Um, trust your instinct uh, because the amount of pupils I get that are completely screwed up um, and it's just one after another because they go, oh, I've come to see you because I, I think you might be uh, more open-minded, free-minded rather than um, paralysed with uh, theory. Right. And, hmm. and but then again, it's no, it's no reflection on the other coaches. Everybody's different. The, the thing is, um, if you, it's like any, any teacher. You've got to understand your pupil or your pupils. If you understand them, you understand how they think, you understand what is getting up their nose, then you start to work on them. It, okay. it's, it's, it's as mental as anything. It's as mental as anything. The game is definitely a, as mental as anything. Yeah. You'd make a band out of that, couldn't you? I reckon you could. Yeah. 
Um, are, you a, are you a believer in free will? So, um, you know, like the, the theory of, well, if I, if, I, if I see that antenna on top of that house two kilometres away and I just aim for that antenna and that all I think about is the antenna, the ball will go in the direction of that antenna. Have you... No, no I, I think people, the people who get obsessed with the target right? Mm. Um, that tends to inflict upon them the confusion in their swing because if you look at your target all the time, so I'm going to hit at that target, right? Then all of a sudden you're not trusting your instinct. You're not allowing the club head hit the ball in, in the vicinity of the target's fine. But if you get an obsession with a target, then if you're a really good player, yes, I'm with that. But you want to be someone who is red hot, not somebody who hits it left, right, and all over the place. One thing we do know, Nobody can hit it straight. I've never, never, ever seen a golfer who can hit it straight on a regular basis. Um, it's extremely rare. But if you talk to people on the practice fairway, you know what they say? Well, all I'm trying to do is hit it straight. Right. Well, they can't hit it straight. So therefore, you teach people. You got to teach people to manoeuvre the ball, a little right to left, a little left to right. And if they fluke one, go straight, then they still get a good result. So what sh what Hitting should it, we? I don't know. It's so it's, it's so it's so simple, Bruce. That's right. But that's the way it's got to be. That's, yeah. uh, that is the way it's got to be, okay. Andrew. It's so, it's it's the, the paralysis by analysis, right? Mm. Often I get people who stand over the ball, and I said, "What are you thinking?" Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about this, this, and this. I said, "Well, you know, let's try Happy Gilmore." I'll line up three balls, walk away. I want you to walk straight up and hit the ball. And you'd be amazed how well people can hit the ball without any thought at all. Right? Yeah. Happy Gilmore. They walk straight up and barrel it. Okay? Now, we don't say they've got to play golf that way all the time, but it's amazing that people can get themselves so bogged down standing over a golf ball trying to hit a golf ball. So, all right. Well, but we, we've got to get close to the end. But Bruce, mm -hmm. under pressure, so for the amateur golfer under pressure, for, so whatever that pressure is, right? So they're playing a match play game, yep. they're, they've got 32 points with two holes to go and they want to get their 36. What should be in their head, ideally? Well, you know what? It, I'd love to be able to answer that question. I've been searching for the answer for a long, long time, 50 years of coaching, right? Um, the, the worst thing you can do is hang on to a score, um, but it's easy to sit here and say it and damn hard to do it because if you're five up with three holes to go, you're thinking, I'm going to win the comp, right? Yes. Thinking all sorts, right? And all you can do and the best thing you can do, because some even pros will tell you, and I've been in this situation as well, sometimes you're almost relieved to have a, you know, you have four or five birdies out of eight holes and you're almost relieved to have the bogey, right, so you can reset because it's building in you. It's getting to the stage where, you know, you know you're going to fall apart. The pressure is just building and you can't, there's nobody's got the secret to just walking away from it. It's nice too. You think about it. Um, experience, experience will help you. Right, is that in the end you just play fairway green. If you're well up in a game and you're going well, try and play for the somewhere on the middle of the fairway and try and play for somewhere in the middle of the green, right? So you can keep it going. And you know, if you make a couple of pars, then you might just 
you know, take that little pressure off the back of your head. Okay. That's then, my advice. All right. There's two last things. One is putting and it was something that your mate, the fly said, he said the secret to putting is to tense your stomach muscles as tight as you can tense them. Yep. What do you- well, that guy's one of the best putters I've ever seen under pressure for big money. So I'm not going to bag him, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, that works for him. Um, I've seen uh, some very good putters. I've seen people putting with $1,000 putters and they just can't make it work. And yet the two best putters at Royal Melbourne have got old thin blades that were sold 100 years ago, right, and they putt better than anybody else. A guy called Ewan Evans and a guy called Ian Carew-Reed, and they are the best putters they have. So, again, putting is instinctive. The more you try and putt into the hole, sometimes the harder it is. And uh, if, if someone holds your head and blocks your eyes out, you'd be amazed how many balls go in the hole. Because, again, you're, all you're doing is putting towards the hole. You are not trying to get the ball into the hole. The harder you try and get it in, sometimes the harder it is. Okay. So just don't – so what you're doing a bit of the Alan Jeans, just don't think, do. Don't That's think. It. That's, yeah, exactly. Thinking, thinking is a natural way of going about it, right? Mm. But, you know, good putters, I mean, Jack Nicholas was uh, the opposite end. What I'm saying is Jack would stand over a putt for four minutes, three, four minutes, right? And he'd line it up and he'd look at it, he'd line it up, and then he'd drill it in. But that man had concentration as good as anybody, mm. right? His concentration um, during major events was outstanding, whereas most people, you can only keep that span for about, minute maybe two and then yeah. something else comes so the, the the secret to putting in my opinion is that you line up you look at it you feel the distance and that's the last time you see the hole till you hear the rattle or you watch it fall in the hole okay i remember playing with um with john newcomb once and he was down oh i don't know we'd say four holes to go and he turned on and you could just, just mm. what you're saying about um jack nicholas he literally turned on and suddenly the ball just started going because he was yeah. concentrating, you know, he was having a good time at the beginning and then when it wasn't fun anymore, it was... Yeah, when he um, switched it on. Let me, let me ask you this to finish, Bruce, and it's, again, I want to say thanks very much for your time because we're... It's my pleasure. I'm very lucky to be able to talk to you, especially for this amount of time. At the club I play at, they've just brought in a new scoring system where everyone's on their phones and scoring on their phones. Yes. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm, 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 well, I, don't, I actually don't like it because I don't like the idea of phones on a course because it's distracting and, you know, yeah. life gets in the way of golf in that sense. Are you, how do you feel about the, the, the way that golf's moving in this well, technological? Well, it takes a lot of the background work. Um, the old days, you know, they come in and someone would have to check all the cards and go through it is now very uh, automatic um, and it does uh, probably speed up the whole process. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm still living a bit of the old world. So, you know, you mark your card, you, you check the card, you sign it and, and you go in and have a drink. Um, yeah. but that's gone. Okay. But with, with the system the way it is, I'm not going to knock the system. I think the system, um, going forward with the game means that, uh, you're streamlining it. You're taking a lot of work away from those people who give all the good time to the club, you know, <laughs> and the pro shop and the pros and they're all 
trying to add up cards and, you know, you get the wrong hole and all sorts of stuff. You know, it's been streamlined, so I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that because I'll, I'll now be with it too yeah. because I hadn't thought about that yeah. aspect of it. I'd only thought about my old-fashionedness, so thanks for correcting me. Yep. Bruce Green, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Um, Andrew, you, before you, Before anyone finishes playing golf or before we quit, what's the one experience we should have? Is it a hole-in-one? Is it playing St Andrews? Is it – what do you think? Well, yes. Um, I think um, – it's a good question. Let, let, let's say about in your own playability, yes, a hole-in-one is something that everyone would like to take with them for the great course in the sky. Um, I think, um, you know, the, just the experience of playing – uh, some of the great courses overseas. I mean, one of the big travelling, whether it's playing golf or anything else, is you come back with the memory and you relive that memory for years and years and years. So, you know, I, I went to the Augusta with um, the PGA when I went onto the board of the PGA and that was one of the highlights of my career, my golfing life. And um, I had my... Um, my birthday in the in the clubhouse with Nick Faldo. I thought that was quite memorable. Driving down Magnolia Lane first thing in the morning, um, another great experience. So, you know, you know, not everybody's going to get that, but you know, if you've got to go and see uh, a tournament at Augusta, that is a highlight. If you got to go to a British Open, that would be a highlight. So, you know, there are events that you might get a great buzz if you save your money and go and do it. Um, but I think. You know, hole-in-ones are just something special. I've had three in my life. They're my greatest regret is I haven't had one at Royal Melbourne. Oh, well, keep and, playing. And I get really jealous when the members keep coming in and saying, I've got a hole-in-one, come and have a drink. I mean, I'm saying, I don't know whether I want to. <laughs> <laughs> Pisses me off. Yeah. Have you got an, Do you have an eclectic round at, uh, at Royal, like a, an eclectic score? Yeah. Um, I can't tell you exactly what it was, but... Um, Having had an albatross on um, uh, on the second of the west, having come back from a heart operation, it was the first game, and my ball bounced in the air and jumped straight in the hole on the par five. So, uh, you know, to me, I reckon an albatross beats a hole in one. Yeah, that's good. It doesn't recognition. Um, and I was I had a game. I played with Bob Hawke and a, and a couple of members years ago, and um, I, I held my second shot on the eleventh of the west. Uh, having birdied the hole before and then had to birdie on the hole afterwards. And he, as we walked across the road, he said, he said, what are you doing working here? You should be on the tour. And I said, well, if I could play like this, I would be. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> right. So, but it's been, it's been a great life and a great career. And, um, you know, I'm just so very, very lucky and fortunate. It's, um, when I walked through those gates at Royal Melbourne at the age of 13, I, I never would have guessed uh, I'm still there now. And, you know, my love affair with the club. I live right on the edge of the course. I'm, as I'm talking to you, I can look out the window and there's the golf course. So I don't think anyone's luckier than me in the game of golf. All right. I think we're pretty lucky to have you, Bruce. So thanks very much. 50 years Thank in the game, you. over 40 years at Royal. Yep. And, um, and thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks Got any, Bruce? Bruce Green. Thanks, mate. So there is Mr. Bruce Green, and I think you'll get an inkling of just how and why he's been at Royal Melbourne for over 40 years. He's just a brilliant human being and a great communicator, um, and I just was fanboying, really, 
at the end, I just wanted to, <laughs> wanted to keep asking questions because he's just seen so much and done so much and experienced so much. So look, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please, you know, hit the subscribe button and enjoy it um, and tell your friends. And uh, next time, geez, I don't know what we're going to have, but I promise you there'll be something to learn from it. All the best and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>